imagine leaving a loved one to a violent death, murder. You'd expect everything to come together to find the killer and bring them to justice, wouldn't you? It's like on TV or in the movies. What about real life? Sometimes the system works against those who have survived this type of tragedy, or it doesn't work at all, leaving survivors open to be victimized and hurt over and over and over. This is Imagine Publicity on Air, and I'm your host for today's broadcast, Delilah Jones of ImaginePublicity.com. My guest is Griffin, a well-known true crime author, spearheaded a book which allows the victims' voices to be heard. Survivors, shocking stories about America's pursuit of transparency and justice, tells each true story of injustice because they're written by the survivors themselves. Welcome, Denny. We we do this often. Um, I just want to let listeners know that Denny is the host of Crime Wire and the Transparency Project, and I am the co-host and, and producer of those two uh, podcasts. So we've been together for a long time, haven't we? We certainly have, Dee. When you mention the number of episodes, <laughs> it, it really is kind of scary. It is. I, I think I've lost count at around 710. So there, there's a lot out there for listeners to catch up on. And, and you know what's interesting is going back and listening to some of the older podcasts and finding out that nothing has changed for these cases in all these years. Or some of them which have found a little traction and they're getting close to, you know, to some sort of uh, resolution on the case, and which that always makes us happy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's exciting, especially I think now that with the new technology, particularly in the DNA uh, field, that some of these cases from the decades uh, old are now starting to be solved, and it's really, uh, really an amazing thing, and it, it, it does give uh, a lot more hope. Uh, I, I think than uh, than some of these survivors used to have that there may be some justice uh, at the end of the road. Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, I think I think you and I were the first ones to interview um, Dr. Ellen Graytech from Parabon, and my goodness, how far they've come in the last few years with you know being involved in solving a lot of cases because of their work with DNA and because of the, you know, the actual composites they can come up with based on that DNA information. So, you know, it's fun to think that we were on the ground floor of some things that that took off later on, but let's go back to, (laughs) let's go, yeah, let's go back to the book. Describe how the transparency project came about and then ultimately led to creating the book survivors okay the i was contacted by various people and i i also had personal experience in trying to obtain records from not usually the police agencies it also could be perhaps a medical examiner but from the authorities who were involved in doing investigations of uh, of homicides or suspicious deaths. And 
there's something uh, called the open case exemption. It's some, as long as a case is still even technically open, even if it's not being worked on, that the agencies, the authorities are exempt from FOIA requests. It can be FOIA or whatever particular state calls it sunshine laws, but the request for, for uh, information. And it was very frustrating because you want the information. Some of these cases were, again, decades old. And you would think after all that time, what harm would it be if a case hasn't even been worked in 15 or 20 years, if it's collecting dust somewhere in a file cabinet? What would be the harm in releasing information, especially to the families of the victim, so they could get a, a grip or an understanding of what was done to try to solve their loved one's case. And so I came up with the idea, and, and other people also suggested it, that we do something to try to balance the playing field. I, I don't want to overuse that expression, but uh, that's what it is. Um, and so I started doing some research, and I found – an Illinois law, I believe it was from 2016, it's referred to as Molly's Law. And that was a case, the Larry Young, who was the father of Molly Young, who was deceased, was found himself in this situation of trying to get records and trying to get information. And he, he pushed uh, for legislation in Illinois that was dubbed Molly's Law, and what it did, uh, it did several things. One of the main things is that it, if you submit a re- FOIA request to a police agency in Illinois, under Molly's law, if they, if they refuse or decline to provide the information to cite the open case thing, open case exemption, the requester can appeal that to the state attorney general. And the big thing about that is once that is done, the onus is on the police agency to not only say that the case is active, which, again, these uh, homicides stay stay open. So it's not only open, but it's got to be active. They have to prove to the uh, attorney general that they are actually investigating the case. If they can't do that, then the AG can order the records to be released and and actually find the agency uh, that refused to release them. So that is a great thing. Uh, as a, it's, you know, it, it, it doesn't solve all the problems, but it's a, a great step forward for for transparency. The um, another thing it does it extends the civil uh, statute of limitations for civil wrongful death suit. In certain cases, not every death case, but in certain cases, depending on the circumstance, from what had been a two-year statute to a five-year statute. And this was great because it gives the the families, the survivors, uh, in the certain cases, an extra option if the police have been unable to uh, solve the case or come up with, a, with an arrest if the family suspects, has a suspect of their own in mind or suspects, 
through the civil action, they can get them in a court setting and depose them and ask them questions under oath and, and get information. So that is important. And as a follow-up to that, that as we were just discussing about solving, uh, especially with the DNA advancements to some of these cases that are very old, that from the if an arrest is subsequently made, whether it's five years down the road or 10 years or 20 years down the road, that if there's a court action and whether the verdict is guilty or not guilty doesn't make any difference, the survivors have one year after that to file a civil wrongful death action. So in in, in a sense, I suppose, that extends the uh, – the, uh, statute of limitations, if you will, if there's an arrest made in a court action, it, it's indefinite because the, the family would have or the survivors would have a year after that uh, court decision. So that prompted me to uh, to see what could be done to get legislation enacted in other states and possibly on a national level. Uh patterned after Molly's law. Now, again, uh, and Larry Young would tell you that this isn't uh, an end-all. It's a start. More needs to be done, but it's a great start. And that uh, we wanted to put together the survivor's book to allow people who've been victimized, believe they've been victimized by the system with a lack of transparency, to be able to tell their stories and through public awareness, try to get legislation enacted and, and get the uh, momentum that perhaps well, Jenny, if, we, we can give people a better shot. Right. And I'm going, I'm backtracking just a little bit and in, back into Molly's law. If there, yeah. if it comes to the point where they can file the wrongful death suit, if it's gone to that, that extreme, what happens if if within their civil suit they find that there was police misconduct or or something went wrong in the investigation that was covered up or you know we can think of a million different things is there right. something within that or it, within the civil action that uh, you know that can can bring that portion of justice as well well that's an interesting point because i'm not a lawyer so i i don't want to act like a lawyer i'm not trying to play lawyer here but it's my understanding that the civil action would be strictly against the person or persons the family or the, the survivors of people who filed the lawsuit uh allege or contend were complicit or responsible for the death uh, I don't believe that addresses uh, police uh, – corruption might be too strong a word – but police uh, issues with how the investigation was conducted uh, or, or maybe no investigation was conducted at all. And most of your, uh, your governments, your governmental agencies are exempt from lawsuits unless there are certain conditions. So that's, that's an area that would have to be, I believe, addressed separately from the civil – lawsuit against the people the family thinks was complicit or responsible for the death. 
Okay, so in bringing all of this together, um, you know, I know we started the transparency group and people joined it and we've interviewed a lot of people. And then you came up with the idea of creating this anthology, Survivors. How did that come about? Did you just kind of have a light bulb moment? <laughs> no, actually, <laughs> I was. Uh, well, I. I thought that because we had covered so many cases, you know, over the years through uh, through CrimeWire and then the uh, Transparency Project Radio later on, that I, I knew there were probably a lot more of these stories out there than people would think. I, I think the general perception, if you have not been involved with losing a loved one to a to a murder or suspicious death, I, I think most people assume that the police investigate they find uh, the culprit you know they and uh, and make an arrest and every everybody ends up uh, with some resolution and i believed just that based on our experience my experience with the dealing with these families that that was not true that that there were more of these uh, unsolved cold cases and possibly botched cases investigative wise that people didn't know about. So I started reaching out to some of the people we had spoken with through, uh, through our radio. One of them, uh, I'm sure you remember well, is uh, Garland Atkinson, uh, Delilah, from the, uh, from the Lover's Lane murders. Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, we've covered him, I, I think, on a couple of the anniversaries of the, of the murders of his son and his son's uh, friend. So, and, and people expressed an interest in telling their stories. I explained what we hope to accomplish or what I hope to accomplish if we could get the book out. But the stories had to be in their own words. They had to be their stories, not mine. And uh, I got a lot of interest from that. Uh, unfortunately, the uh, of, of all the people who originally wanted to participate nearly 50% ended up falling by the wayside over the course of doing the book. Uh, and generally the reason for that was they had good intentions, but when it came to having to relive the loss mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, you know, there was a lot of uh, gruesome circumstances as well. in, in some of these cases, uh, there was, uh, such as the lover's lane murders, a really um, a horrible things happened and getting getting their thoughts on paper and having to relive it just proved to be too much they just couldn't do it so that was the primary reason uh and all of a sudden from where i thought i had too many stories i ended up with not enough so i was reading um a grief diaries book uh, through uh, published by linda fell at ellie blue media and I reached out to her, and I wanted to know if there would be any issues if I contacted some of the people who had told their stories in the in the grief books. And she said no. And so I started contacting some of those people, and um, several of them wanted to come on board and tell their stories as well. So we ended up with uh, 19 stories of survi- the actual survivors. And four stories, uh, four chapters from 
civilian cold case investigators. And in in those chapters, they talk about some of the cases they worked and the obstacles, you know, about a civilian uh, uh, investigator and, and the attitude of some of the police departments and so on. Uh, and they come up with suggestions about if you find yourself in that situation about different things you might do uh, in dealing with the police and uh, and trying to move the case forward. So we ended up with a total of 23 chapters. Uh, in well, the that book. just gives another that gives another perspective that wasn't wasn't expected, I guess. Um, and and I don't know whether in too many of the other books that I've seen similar to this that it it brings a different perspective. You're kind of you're you're allowing both sides of the story to be told in a sense um, by allowing you know, the uh, detectives and so forth and cold case, cold case investigators to also be a part of it. Yes, I. that was not my intent to begin with. Uh, I hadn't thought about that, but uh, it was suggested to me one of the contributors who's been very active in the project is Sarah Stein, and uh, she, she is one of the four... Uh, Articles, chapters from the from the cold case investigators, and she suggested that actually that it would be a good idea to perhaps to have that perspective, and some you know some information uh, for readers who are in that situation, uh, maybe give them some ideas of what they can do to try to advance their cause. So uh, I was very happy to. Uh, to have these four individuals, these four investigators participate. Yes, I, I wasn't aware of that. I haven't gotten a copy yet, and so I haven't written or read it. So I'm excited to be able to do that. And, and while I bring that up, why don't you tell listeners where they can purchase this book? Survivor. Absolutely. It's, uh, it came out August 1st, so it's kind of fresh off the press. And it's available in both the paperback or the Kindle version. And they are available on Amazon.com. Uh, and they they will be, again, it, it just came out. So uh, they will eventually be going into uh, select bookstores and on other online sites as well. But uh, right now I know for sure they are, uh, both versions are available on Amazon. Great. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about what type of cases that you uh, that the people have come to you with and 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 told about in this book. I know there's probably a lot of undetermined death and a lot of suspicious death and a lot of you know rulings of suicide when it's obvious it isn't. I know we over the years we've been, we've interviewed a lot of people who have told these stories and and it just seems like more and more people are experiencing the same thing within their cases, don't you think? I do think that. And again, to me, the numbers are surprising because people tend to think all cases are solved promptly and all that kind of thing. But yes, uh, the suicides obviously uh, are a problem. Because in some of the cases we have already covered on, on CrimeWire, um, the the, fa- it, the family 
says, and they have ample evidence or ample cause to believe that the death was not a suicide. And we've always been very careful on, on crime while you're going back years that when someone suggests or thinks that their loved one did not take his or her own life, we've always asked for more than just the gut feeling. I don't want to sound callous, but some people, it's very difficult for them to accept the fact that their loved one was in such a situation that that they felt suicide was appropriate. And they have this feeling, this gut feeling, if you will, that 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 couldn't have happened. There had to be some type of uh, foul play involved. And because just because someone say had just gotten married or just gotten a promotion on the job or just bought a new car or whatever, where it appeared they had, you know, something going for them and therefore they wouldn't take their own life. That, that alone isn't sufficient. wasn't sufficient for us to, uh, to, to feel that the suicide was questionable. Um, so the people that we interviewed on CrimeWire had other reasons, uh, substantial reasons, why this death should not have been ruled a suicide without investigation, without ample investigation. And um, some of those stories are in the survivor's book, those types of stories. And they are very. In some troubling. of those cases, the evidence was obvious. It, it still is obvious because a lot of them still aren't solved. But yes, and and in a cases like that, Denny, where where the evidence is is very very obvious, you know, we we bang our heads against the wall or bang on the door of the law enforcement agency to either reopen this case, reinvestigate this case, and why is it not happening? Well, I here's where we get back into the transparency issue, and, and one of the issues, problems I had personally, my attitude regarding this, uh, it's kind of like the fox guarding the hen house. Uh, let me explain that. If If a case was botched, if an investigation was not done or an adequate investigation was not done, the and the request goes to the police agency, we want to see what you did. We want to see your investigative reports. We want to see what happened in this case. We want to see what went on. And now you have people who may have something they're not proud of if they didn't do an adequate investigation. And they're the ones deciding, and other than Illinois now with this Molly's Law Attorney General piece, um, these, the police agency decides who's going to see what. So if there is anything there, if, if there was a problem, they and they want to protect, if not an individual officer, if they want to protect the integrity or the image of their department, they they can say you're not seeing it <laughs> you're not going to see this uh and uh, not not saying that there aren't a lot probably 95% of the cases there are legitimate reasons in an open active investigation why you don't want to you know t- 
tip the suspect off uh, as to knowledge you have that only the the, uh, the perpetrator would know and all that kind of thing. That, that That's valid. But it's also used in some cases, I believe, to protect the uh, reputation of a of an individual officer or officers, and and the department, and and that's why uh, I became very uh, involved in wanting to see some way around this uh, open open case exemption stuff, uh, where the uh, where the department in question would have to comply and have to release the information uh, unless they could prove it would it would actually harm the investigation. So that that was the main impetus for all this, but it, it comes back to transparency and who's calling the shots, who's in charge of who can see what, and is it fair, is it right to have the same agency that may have something that they don't want disclosed simply from the image perspective or reputation perspective that they be the sole uh, referee of who's going to see what information. So that, that was very troubling to me. Right. And it, it just goes to show that a lot of, a lot of these cases like you've described really never make it through the criminal justice system because they haven't been able to move out of a particular law enforcement agency. So they, they never even get into the judicial system. So what did you find was the mindset of, of the people who came forward to write these stories? What, what was their motivation other than wanting to get this solved and to tell the story, was there anything more behind their eagerness to do this? Denny, are you there? Well, I see you on the switchboard. You have just now dropped the call. Well, we will wait for Denny to call back in, which I'm sure he will. And as we're waiting for the guest to call back in, I've, I've just got to say that putting together a book like this isn't easy. When you consider writing a book as a single author and the process that you go through in researching and putting facts together and um, you know, you only have to deal with you and your personality. However, when you're putting together a book that multiple stories are being told chapter by chapter and being written by different people, there's another dynamic involved. And I would just like to give a big shout out to Linda Fell, who has done many of these types of anthologies through her grief diaries. You can see all of the books that that she's pulled together at griefdiaries.com because they all deal with various subjects, various ways that people grieve and various things that gr people grieve about. It's not always just the death of a loved one or the death of a pet. 
hurt or or something violent um, in a, in a person's life. It can it can be anything. So I encourage everyone to go to um, griefdiaries.com to see exactly what I'm talking about. So again, it's it it's a special kind of person who can deal with all these other personalities and kind of coordinate it all and bring it all together in a book like survivors. Um, so I don't know how much longer it's going to take for our guest to call back in. So maybe he's had an issue uh, with calling back in. So I would just like to close out the show by saying um, it's, it's very important that these stories be heard. It's very important that these stories be listened to. Um, and, oh, Denny, you're back. Yay. <laughs> not, nothing, nothing like and, losing your internet connection. <laughs> I know, I know. So, well, you know, when you're doing live podcasting, these are the perks. This is what you put up with, and it, it happens. And, and thankfully, we have a very forgiving audience, so that's all right. I was just I was just kind of babbling on a little bit about how different it is pulling together different personalities writing a book like this as opposed to writing on your own. So you're you only have to deal with yourself when you're writing your own book, but how did this how did this work out for you? I'm sure there was a lot of gnashing of teeth and pulling of hair. <laughs> Yes, uh, it, well, the with one or two exceptions as far as these survivor stories go, I believe there were two exceptions. But other than that, the contributors had little to no writing experience. So um, I was basically acted as the editor. They would submit their story. The first round, I would go through it. I would organize the uh, you know sentence structure and paragraphs and so on and so forth. If I had any questions because something didn't make sense or needed more clarification, we'd go back and forth until we had the story where we wanted it. Um, it was very obviously time consuming and uh, trying to get everything just right and you know, not using names in certain cases unless the names were already a matter of public record, for example, in police reports or something that's already available to the public. Um, and and it, was, uh, it was quite a process. And dealing with a, a total, including the, the cold case investigators, dealing with a total of 23 uh, contributors, plus all the people I dealt with initially who ended up uh, dropping out uh, be, because some of them, you know, I we'd go back and forth, and I I would uh, be following up and and finding out where they stood in in getting their their submission ready, and uh, it, there was a lot of uh, follow up phone calls and emails and uh, Facebooking and all that kind of thing, messaging. To, to get that done. So it was very time consuming. And you are right. I had never been involved. I, I've had a couple of books where I've been a co-author and dealing maybe with, you know, with one other person. Uh, but, but dealing with 23 individuals was quite an experience. Uh, and, and these are all great people. 
you know, and it, but but still, and and trying to explain why I needed more information or or why something shouldn't be in or, or that type of thing was uh, it, it it was very a very time consuming situation, and it took a lot longer. I, I had originally anticipated having the everything ready in, in about six months or so, and it took well over a year. So it, it uh, doubled up, uh, at least minimum doubled up the time that I had anticipated. I can only imagine. But but on the other hand, it's, this has totally been a labor of love for you um, because of, of what you've done for these people over the years as far as allowing them a platform, allowing them to come forward and and this means everything to them. That's what I've learned over the years in the many, many broadcasts we've done with, with some of the people in your book and, and others that there's a level of frustration that we don't understand that unless you've gone through this, you can't even imagine the level of frustration that these people go through. You know, when, again, you watch TV or you watch the movies and it's, it's everything is cut and dried, open, closed, black and white. And in real life, it's not that way. And I, I think the general public really needs to get a different perspective on this. You can go on Facebook or other social media platforms and be armchair detective and, and hope that you can come up with the, you know, the clue that's going to solve the case. But you have to remember that there are still people behind this, the ones that matter right now. Those are the ones that we have to take care of. We have to nurture them and uh, you know, help them along the way. So, you know, I just ask people, be careful out there with what you you, you know how to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I'd like to uh, backtrack here a minute. I, I, don't want to have any misimpressions. Uh, I've said that several people, almost 50% of the original people who wanted or expressed an interest in contributing a story had, uh, had dropped out. And I want to say, I understand that. I'm not saying that to be critical because I can understand about, about having to relive this and what it would be like. And, uh, you know, and, and the investigation piece of it, getting your head uh, up against a brick wall that seems like at every turn trying to get the police or the uh, agency to, to take a second look or to reopen uh, a case. And these people uh, who weren't able to uh, keep going, they should not be criticized for that. It's certainly completely understandable and I, I don't want to uh, anyone to think badly of uh, of anyone who who wasn't able to to complete the project. And to those who did complete it, I want to say that they are to be commended because it would be very easy, I think, if you do go through this, if if, if you have gone through this in some cases for years or decades. Of, of trying to get attention, trying to get someone to look at your case, trying to get some type of resolution. It would be uh, understandable if you just eventually throw your arms up and say, I, I, I can't do it anymore. You know, I've been beaten into submission. 
uh, and I just can't take anymore. So the the people who have had and do have the uh, the wherewithal and the stamina to be able to continue the fight uh, are, are really deserve uh, accolades because it, it is not an easy thing. And uh, I'm, I'm saying that just as an outsider looking in that I can appreciate that and to, to actually be the person who has to go through this and has gone through it um, to, to be able to hang in there and keep going is, is really something. And, I, I mentioned uh, in the in the book that none of the stories have an end. They're all open cases. So there's no resolution to any of them. People, the, these people are all still fighting, trying to find out what happened to their deceased loved ones. So they're, they're stories without endings. So this this particular book has no page at the at the back that says the end because there is no end. Um, what do you think? Speaking again to the general public, what do you think people can do to further this cause along? That you know, all over the country, we've got thousands and thousands of cold cases, and definitely not enough experienced people to be working them. So I, I, I don't want to appeal to the armchair detectives out there. However, I do feel like the general public needs to be aware that this, this can happen to anybody. It doesn't matter. Any of these cases that you read about in this book can happen to you. You're just one of the lucky ones. We all are who have not experienced this. So what can we do as everyday people to kind of help this along a little bit? I I think that what needs to be done and what the general public can do is add support. One thing they can do is join the Transparency Project. It's a closed group, but anyone interested in supporting the effort can certainly uh, – you know, request membership, and I uh, and that's would review Facebook. their. That's on Facebook, and uh, I would certainly, uh, you know, I I do screen somewhat the uh, the people who want to, who want to join because I don't want to get spammers and scammers and so forth on there, but uh, and and I would approve their membership request, and they can support us in that manner. Uh, the other thing they can do, quite honestly is read the book and from there tell their friends about it uh you know and, and and get the word out the more people who read this book and become aware of some of the issues the the better the chance that we can get legislation passed if we have a, a following if we have uh some enthusiasm if we have people who support trying to balance the playing field and looking at it from the victim's uh, survivor's standpoint and perspective. Uh, Because again, the general public, thankfully for them, has never been in this situation. They're not aware of of what goes on. So I think that public awareness uh, is, is critical. So I'm hoping, we are hoping, all of us, all of us who participated in the book, 
the contributors, uh, you know, the survivors and the investigators and so on. Um, we all have the same goal in mind. That's what we all want to see. We want to see some movement because right now it appears to a lot of people that the suspects seem to get the lion's share of the uh, the rights and the, the benefits at the expense of uh, of the victims. So we would like to see that change. And anything that the public can do to show support uh, would be greatly appreciated. And sometimes it's just something simple like a kind word. That's that's all it takes. It's not, you know, I think people become apathetic in a way because they don't feel like what they have to contribute is enough. And it's always enough. Whatever you do, whatever you say, however it comes about from you, it is enough. And it may be just that little piece of the puzzle that was needed to help this victim or to or to even solve the case. I mean, a lot of these cases are so old that witnesses have passed away the, and probably the perpetrators as well. And But that doesn't mean that justice can't be served. It, it needs to be served for just for the peace of mind of all of the people who told these stories in the book. That is right. And, you know, the whether it's through shows like Crime Wire or the Transparency Project podcast or other podcasts, um, giving the, the survivors and the victims a platform to keep the story alive, keep it out there. Because like you say, you never know when someone will read it or hear about it and think, you know, I know something about that. Uh, maybe I'll get a hold of the uh, the survivor and, and or, or the police and, and tell them what I know, something. It might not be important, but it could be. So let, let, me, let me mention it. And people that haven't, uh, thought about a case in years or people might not even realize they know something that could be important but they don't think it's important so as long as you can keep that story out there through podcasts through uh, newspaper articles the, that type of thing as long as you can keep the public keep the story in the public domain there's a chance someone with information may see it and say, hey, maybe I should maybe I should call the cops and, and tell them uh, I saw this or I know that or to talk to this person. Be, you know, that's not going to happen in every case, certainly, but it's possible. But it's not going to be possible if the story's not out there. So the 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 survivors have to keep it going. Well, that's correct, and I think you know there's so many different types of stories being told, whether it's. Uh, well, meaning how these how these crimes happen. We have you have one in there about the Dixie Mafia. One is a military case, um, and and some are just people in the wrong place at the wrong time. Would you want to tell any bit any more about that? I don't want to give away everything in the book, but because I think it's an important, it's a very important book for people to read and to to get an idea of what is really happening out there. Yes, it certainly is, and it's uh, well. You you mentioned we got 
a variety of cases. We got the suspicious deaths, we got the suicides, we got the declared homicides and all that. And there's one exception sto- story in the book, one exception to the uh, the possible police uh, botching an investigation or, or not investigating. One one of the writers, it's, it's a very uh, interesting story, and it's it's an open, it's a cold case. But that particular contributor was totally satisfied with the with the police uh, investigation. She is confident they've done everything they can, and are still working it. And, and that is great. But uh, to have eighteen out of nineteen people dissatisfied or questioning what happened is uh is a stunning number to me that there there are that many and the the military case you mentioned I was personally involved in that one and extremely frustrating to develop information and let me call it instead of let me call it leads to develop leads for investigation and have the agency charged with the investigation not do anything with them. Uh, and there was a case put on the in, in an inactive status for lack of leads and then stating that's the reason the case is not being uh, actively investigated any longer. And then to get leads, workable leads, and refuse to accept them or or refuse to to work them uh it, it's maddening to me and uh you know i just i have trouble understanding that but that's the way it is and i again this is a personal experience i had with one of these cases so when i heard people talking about their frustration and and calling the uh the the police department, the police agency, time after time. Some call regularly, some uh, maybe on the anniversary of the death. They have a you know try to get some follow up information or try to get something uh, uh, something going or a status report or what have you. And uh, but they just go through this and nothing ever seems to get done. So I I because of my involvement in this one case, I, I can understand the frustration. And what it can, the toll it can take on you, because I've been working this particular case for since 2010, so I've got a little over nine years that I've been involved and come up with a lot of good leads. I don't have a smoking gun, you know, I don't have a confession or something, but uh, we came up with a lot of good information and it has gone absolutely nowhere. So that's, again, a very frustrating situation, and I can. I can empathize with the uh, with the survivors who have been in that exact situation. That is so frustrating. I mean, I mean, if you were to, if you were to have the smoking gun, I mean, after nine years of investigating it and not having anything moving forward, it, it, again, like, like I said earlier, a lot of these cases are stuck. They they can't even get into the criminal justice system. They're stuck, and it, it's as years go by, it's more and more difficult to find that 
smoking gun is more about finding those little teeny winny puzzle pieces that, uh, you know, that hiding under the chair leg or something and <laughs> moving something just in the direction to be able to see it and it together. And that's, that seems to be about the only way some of these things are going to move forward. Yes. And it's, it's critical. You know, what I've learned too is, is obviously if you can get the local newspapers, it would, would be a great thing, you know, to keep, keep the information going, run, run a story every few months or whatever about the, about the case. But I found out that, <clears throat> excuse me, in in small communities or rural communities, if you might have limited newspapers or TV uh, outlets, that the reporters are generally dependent on the police agency for information. You know their stories and uh, and and get info and inside sources and all that kind of thing. So if you're if you have a story where you're being critical of that police agency. These local reporters that have to rely on them for their news and the police agency for their news uh, are not going to want to get involved. They're, they're, they aren't going to be uh, very enthusiastic about criticizing or uh, opening up a can of worms that uh, could make that agency or department look bad. So you almost need to get a reporter from outside the area, an investigative reporter, instead of just a local reporter, but an investigative reporter that gets into this kind of thing, you got a better chance that way of of getting good coverage or fair coverage than trying to get, and again, there could be exceptions, but in most cases, I believe, the local reporters who uh, are dependent on that local police agency are not going to want to uh, say too much that's, that's critical or could make that department look bad. So the media is a great thing, but you got to have the right media that are in a position and willing to, uh, to be fair and do a fair job of reporting. Oh, exactly. And it, it is getting more difficult to be able to get reporters interested because of the way media has changed so much itself. I mean, then the one good thing is that we have so many digital reporters that are doing an excellent job of, of helping these people get their stories out, whether they have blogs or, or, you know, digital magazines or digital, um, uh, what am I trying to say? There's a lot of people out there who have taken journalism to a, a different level and it, it's good to see and it's not so good to see on some ends of it but um, it's and it's difficult because these people are willing to do anything or go anywhere or, or believe what someone tells them and unfortunately there's a lot of scammers out there and I think I think that's one thing I, I, I commend you about is keeping the Transparency Project Facebook page private um, to protect these people, they they deserve our protection in that sense. So, you know, there's there are ways to get it done, um, but you just have to be very careful and very selective about who you're willing to to align yourself with, um, especially in the online digital world. 
But as we're oh. as we're winding down the last few minutes, Denny, what yeah. would you want listeners out there to take away from this? What what are your last parting thoughts? Well, before I go, I just want to mention one thing that I think is important for potential readers to know that when I started this, when I came up with this idea about doing the anthology, I didn't want to personally make a profit off someone else's grief. So the arrangement I made and and have told all the contributors that once I recover my initial publishing costs, all royalties resulting from the sale of the book are going to be donated equally to two nonprofit advocacy, victim advocacy groups that support and help the survivors and and, and victims of crime. So uh, no one is, is making a profit off of someone else's tragedy. So I just wanted to get that out there. The the next thing uh, is back to the public awareness. I, I, I want the public to know that there are problems with the system as it is currently works or doesn't work that that need to be addressed. There are a lot of people out there that are hurting because they find themselves in this unexpectedly through no fault of their own. Uh, You know, one day all of a sudden their loved one gets murdered or ends up dead and they didn't see it coming. And now they're in this situation and it could happen to any one of us at any time. There's no guarantees. So uh, I want people to be aware of that. And I want people to know what's happening and and that their support in trying to get these situations rectified is is critical. It is critical. And once again, you can get survivors and at Amazon. And can you also buy it? Is, is it also going to be uh, offered on the Grief Diaries website? I yeah, Ellie Blue Media, and that's A L Y capital B L U E, Ellie Blue okay. one word media, and you can go to the Ellie Blue Media site, and the book would be available there as well. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, not just for today, but for every day, Denny. You know, every time we do one of these podcasts, it it has a new meaning, and I I just feel very strongly about that. I'm honored to be your co-host and producer along the way. And, you know, hopefully we have many, many more years <laughs> together. <laughs> if, you, yes. if, if Bear allows it. <laughs> Bear, Bear is my wife, by the way. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, she uh, comes first. He, I got to tell yeah. you, like you say, we've been together a long time and you're an invaluable asset. So... I don't Thank know if you. I uh, that none of this would have happened without you. Well, I'm I'm honored to play my my small part, and I hope I hope we can gather up a lot of other people who are willing to put themselves out there just to do something, you know, to help these people because it is important yes. for for all of us. So, 
go to Amazon, get a copy of Survivor's Anthology, and do yourself a big favor and do the authors a big favor and leave a, a review. It's very, very important. It pushes the, you know, the rankings up higher, so it's available to more people, and like Denny said, this is this is not a for-profit book. This is going to help other people along the way, and every sale is important. So spend a couple bucks, get this book, learn from these stories, and do what you can. So my parting words to you as we go out into a world that's filled with, with evil sometimes there is still a lot of good out there there's still a lot of good people who are willing to go the extra mile to be a help of each other to each other so go out there today and be kind to someone just because you can <laughs> 